Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this latest OIES podcast, which is brought to you by the Energy Transition Programme. My name is James Henderson. I'm a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. And with me today, I've got Sarah Bakshuri, who is the founder and president of SBB Energy, as well as being a senior fellow at OIES. Sarah and I edited a new edition of the Oxford Energy Forum, which considers nuclear energy in the global energy landscape. And in a series of articles, it asks whether nuclear is advancing sustainability and ensuring energy security. Today, we're going to be reviewing some of those key themes in the forum, and in particular, focusing on Sarah's essays on the geopolitics of nuclear energy, and also on the intersection between nuclear energy and medicine. So Sarah, welcome to the OIS podcast series. Thank you for having me, James. It's a pleasure. Great. All right. Well, look, let's start with some context, which you know is provided by the first few articles in the forum. Obviously, COP28 saw a pledge by 22 countries to triple nuclear capacity by 2050, and nuclear power was included as an element in the concluding document of the COP for the first time. So in, in light of this, would you say that perceptions of nuclear energy have changed over the past few years? And what are the prospects now as you see it? Indeed, James, this particularly this trend started when the Russia-Ukraine conflict started and uh, European countries and the global, I would say, environment started to being more conscious about energy security. And nuclear power generation was brought up and a lot of focus has been on nuclear energy as one of those aspects of energy security. So we saw that um, prior to the war, we have witnessed many of those uh, nuclear power generators and power plants shutting off in Europe because of public opinion. Also, we had the Fukushima in Japan that kind of had negative impact on global interest in having nuclear power generation. But again, after the war with Ukraine, along with all of this environmental consciousness, net zero and moving toward uh, lower emission energy sources has once again uh, brought the whole attention toward nuclear power generation. And yes, there is more of before interest in this field. Would you say COP28 was a turning point? I mean, it's the first time it's been mentioned in a concluding document. I mean, the pledge was made. Do you think that was a significant moment in Dubai? It was a significant moment because if we think about it, when an international convention or uh, like COP28 recommends a nuclear power generation, then some countries could not prevent other ones from having access to nuclear power generation during to safety or security concerns. So having that included in COP kind of gives them green light to most of the countries to look and uh, look into uh, nuclear power generation. And it's uh, it's very important. For instance, um, we also have that covered into our this issue of uh, Oxford Energy Forum. Uh, we have a section on uh, regional and countries perspective. And for instance, if you look at countries in Middle East or uh, Gulf area that they desalinate a large amount of water and part of their electricity is used in water desalination, obviously nuclear could be an option. And we see that, for instance, in Egypt, that they're looking into expanding their nuclear power generation for water desalination. Also, an interesting fact that uh, I want to mention here is that since 2022 and war with Ukraine, for instance, uh, Russia, again, we talk a lot about Russia in different articles uh, and essays that we have in this forum, Russia's sale of nuclear uh, services and fuel has increased 
since the war with Ukraine and including United States that in the U.S., Biden administration set a sanctions on import of any type of energy from Russia, voluntary sanctions. Also, Europe trying to divert away from Russian gas or oil or other sources of energy. But very interesting is that both U.S. and Europe paid a lot more money to Russia during these years of post-war for the amount of nuclear fuel and nuclear services that import and which showed an increase. So, yes, I would say, going back to your question, definitely the focus on nuclear power generation has increased in the past few years. You mentioned some of the regional articles and and you've touched on the Middle East and there's an article on Saudi Arabia. There's also a couple of articles about the U.S. which you've touched on. And from from an energy security perspective, I mean, the U.S., nuclear has obviously plays a big role in the U.S., but it's kind of slightly fallen off the radar, I think, in the last few years, and now appears to be back as the US, you know, is looking towards the energy transition, but is also looking towards diversifying if that, like that fuel supply chain. Can you talk a little bit about the US's role and, and its kind of thoughts on the geopolitics and energy security issues around nuclear? This is very interesting. So US and Rosatom have this agreement that Russia, it's a very long historic agreement that Russia supplies the nuclear fuel for most majority of uh, US commercial power plants. And uh, I could say that US fell behind uh, in terms of the whole cycle of uh, conventional nuclear power generation, if you want to uh, put it that way. However, if you look uh, into U.S. strength is in uh, small modular reactors, which we could kind of consider them as mini grids, but they could be tailored to be even as big or as large as a conventional reactor. And uh, U.S. actually is um, hoping that it could play a major role in increasing the global energy security through installment of some of these small modular reactors. A good example of that would be, let's say, Romania, that if Romania would have some of these SMRs, then we could create some sort of independency from electricity that is generated in Romania and be exported in some of those smaller countries that are heavily dependent on Russia. However, the important factor is that, and this is what uh, we uh, discuss in the geopolitical part, the last part, and I have essays on that, is that where is uh, Russia's role? So if you look at, uh, and China, both of them, if you look at the uranium production uh, from mining, if you look at the country's profile, we would say, okay, Russia is the sixth in terms of producing uh, uranium or uh, after Kazakhstan, uh, Namibia, Canada, Australia, and Uzbekistan. But if we look at every of the, each of these countries, let's say Kazakhstan, which produces about 40% of global uranium uh, ores, we see that Russian companies have a share, at least uh, 26% of direct share and 23% of right of uh, mining. And then China has 60% of future uh, production rights. So if you look at mining, or same as uh, Namibia, Namibia is the second largest producer of uranium uh, mines, and China has a almost um, a majority of share in these mines. So if we start from at this, uh, the ground zero, mining of uranium, we see that China particularly, and then Russia have a huge share of rights over these mines. And then in terms of imports, China imports about 25% of global uranium. 
moving away from the whole cycle of producing fuel, like uh, conversion, enrichment, fabrication, and rebuilding in reactor, Russia again has a huge uh, share and has uh, the dominance over the whole cycle. And we could, again, comparing it with U.S., U.S. is not really in, in the whole cycle. If you look at the conversion of uh, the yellow cake uh, from the mines to the UF6 or uranium hexafluoride, Russia has about 38% of share. China has 25% uh, share. Looking at enrichment, Russia's share is above 40% and uh, China about 11 Fabrication, the same. And the interesting thing is that if you look at the future expectation and predictions, uh, let's say by 2030, is expected that Russia's share of uranium enrichment or fabrication reduces about 10%. But that 10% is, on the other side, the rise of Chinese share. So China's share is going to grow uh, in the future. In terms of building reactors and uh, installing them, about 70% uh, of newly constructed uh, nuclear power plants are in China and Russia combined. And uh, those nuclear reactors that are built outside of China or Russia, again, are mostly built by China and Russia. It's interesting. Obviously, the dominance of Russia and China is becoming a critical issue. But if you look at the example of Ukraine, it has managed to diversify away across pretty much the entire cycle from Russia. And US companies, particularly Westinghouse, have played a big role there. Can you talk a little bit about what the US is doing, and indeed other countries are doing, to try and get away from this, this dominant role of Russia and China? Again, I, I would say in terms of technological advancement, Obviously, reactors will, uh, US is more active in modular, uh, small modular reactors. But again, going back to mining, I would say that US in terms of mining is, uh, and Europe falls way behind China and Russia. It might be interesting for, for the audience, uh, a fact that even the very minimal, uh, uranium production inside the US, the mines in Utah, Russia and Ross Atom have some shares in US over some of the uranium mines. So when it comes to mining, really, the dominance is with China and Russia, and there are long-term contracts. So U.S. and Europe fall a lot uh, behind. And in the recent coup in Niger, uh, I would say that France also lost its right of production in those uh, uranium mines in uh, Niger. When it comes to enrichment uh, of the fuel, again, uh, Russia and China have a big part. And U.S. is itself importer of some of these um, fuel. Look at it like France, uh, among European countries, is one of the countries that is uh, producing nuclear fuel. And we could say that is a strength for uh, European uh, and Western camp. But if you look at the cost of power generation, the cost of fuel, the French fuel, is way higher than the cost of Russian fuel. So if you look at the estimated average of nuclear power generation cost, uh, let's say in between 2021 to 2023, looking at U.S., Russia, and France, we see that Russia has the lowest cost. U.S., the cost is a little higher. Let's say if Russian on average was $27 per megawatt hour, U.S. is around $29. But for France, it's $75 because about 10 to 15 percent of our generation cost is because of the fuel. So the fuel that is produced by France is way higher. So production of electricity is obviously higher. There are other factors, too, is uh, the capital cost and also operational cost. Due to lower uh, standards or regulations that 
Russian uh, reactors have, let's say, in compared to Western uh, or uh, American reactors, obviously their operational cost is lower than the Western ones or U.S. ones. And uh, then looking at capital cost, because capital cost is a huge upfront cost for uh, building and installing these uh, reactors, which is a big cost on the pocket of the countries. Ross Atom is offering these wonderful, I would say, exciting offers of financing up to two-thirds of these capital costs. So if you look at these nuclear reactors, depending on regulations and standards, they have very long life. And again, going back to the example of, let's say, Egypt, Egypt is negotiating with Russia and uh, Russia, Rosatom is going to finance about two thirds of that nuclear power plant, which means that during the long term, we don't know the terms of these agreements. Uh, we don't know if Russia would collect tariffs or how it's going to get paid back. But for a long term, a host country would be dependent and in debt uh, to Russia. Looking back to energy security, affordability is very important and is actually one of those principles of the energy trilemma. We need a sustainable, secure and affordable energy. And if you're looking at power generation from nuclear power plants, as of now, the Western U.S. and uh, Western uh, power generation cost cannot compete with the Russian one. Uh, and that goes back to the whole chain of control, uh, I mean, uh, involvement of Russia in the whole chain of mining up to up, uh, installment and operating the uh, nuclear reactors, the finances that they're offering. And also look at something that I want to bring to everyone's attention in the long term. If a country is importing fuel from Russia or China, Russia or China, because of their dominance over the mining in the long term, they could obviously have huge influence on the prices of uh, fuel or on the prices of the mined uranium. So the electricity uh, generation, which is directly, we see it as a national security aspect of countries, would be so much indebted and dependent on Russia, way more than natural gas or oil that uh, we think uh, currently Europe or the world is dependent on Russia. And one element of fuel cycle we haven't mentioned yet is waste disposal. I mean, another thing that Russia offers is the willingness to to take the waste away and store it. How big a deal do you think that is? I mean, in terms of future energy security, future dependency, or, or rather avoiding future dependency on Russia? What, what, how, how is the waste disposal issue being addressed? That's a very important component of this uh, nuclear power generation and who is supplying and who takes the waste back, uh, which, uh, again, we're looking into Russia. Something that, again, uh, I want to go back to the first question that we discussed about COP28. Now that nuclear power generation has been encouraged in an international, let's say, convention and agreement like COP28, and it's going to be important for countries to have access to that, then later on, it's not being going to be easy for countries, let's say like U.S., to stop con- uh, other countries to have access to nuclear power generation due to the regulation, the, the waste management part at the end, or uh, the technologies being used because it's now part of the net zero environmental mandate. So that remains an important part. But I, I like to actually mention that in this issue of um, Oxford Energy Forum, we try to bring all the different aspects of nuclear power generation. And this first section actually starts with argues 
pro and against nuclear power generation. So we try to look at it from different angles. Uh, in the part that discusses the regional aspects and country aspects, we try to have a balanced uh, approach through different authors contributing on different uh, countries or regions' uh, perspective of having access to nuclear power generation. We have a section actually on technologies that we also look at some of the advanced technologies uh, like SMRs or fusion that how could they change uh, this uh, So coming on to the other, another element of this whole nuclear question that you wrote about uh, and also relates back to geopolitics, you wrote an article, interestingly, talking about the intersection between nuclear energy and medicine, uh, which was a topic that was new to me and the geopolitical angles around it were also something I hadn't really considered. Can you talk us a little bit about where that intersection between nuclear and medicine is and why it is important geopolitically? If you remember together when we were discussing uh, with Bassem about bringing this, uh, including this article or not, we were thinking, okay, this is not necessary energy related article uh, or essay, but we still included it because there is a very close intersection in the realm of nuclear isotopes that are being used for medical purposes and nuclear power generations because during the whole process, uh, this process is that they are produced in the nuclear reactors. And um, there is a significant dependency on Russia and Rosatom in terms of supplies of nuclear uh, isotopes. And these nuclear isotopes are used for imaging uh, and a screening, like in the United States, if anyone uh, goes for, let's say, imaging or scan of their heart or MRI or some of those uh, imaging that uh, they need to inject isotopes uh, or use isotopes, or those isotopes that are used in cancer treatment, they are most significant ones that are only, I would like to emphasize, only produced by Russia and the whole world is dependent on Russia, and they're coming even in the United States from Russia. So I would say, again, going back to the Ukraine-Russia war, the, the energy security wake-up call has some sort of brought to uh, everyone's attention that, okay, we need to consider the uh, diversified energy portfolio or energy system that reduces the dependency. I like to refer back to energy security that even in the mo modern time and after the Ukraine conflict, uh, Ukraine-Russia war, the energy security still in definition, it's very much the traditional definition that going back up to the Churchill's time of World War One, the answer to energy security is diversity, diversification. So diversified sources, diversified suppliers, this is the only way that increases energy security resiliency. Going back to medical isotopes, we included this essay into our uh, energy forum, this issue, because we felt that it's, um, it's very important to raise the awareness that along this process, of uh, nuclear uh, from mining all the way to fuel fabrication and uh, reactors, there is not much diversification, but also when it comes to the medical isotopes, uh, both for imaging, um, screening, and uh, treatment of certain diseases like cancer, even in the United States, we are solely dependent for some of those isotopes to Russia because they are only produced by Russia. So in terms of diversification, I would say nuclear power generation 
while many perceive it as, okay, this is in-home or at-house power generation and increases their energy security independency because we don't have uh, oil imported every day or natural gas that could be prone to certain challenges uh, for transportation or uh, different energy security challenges. However, still nuclear power generation, it has its own challenges in terms of uh, heavily dependency and very little diversification uh, within the whole uh, value chain. So just coming back, as we sort of come towards the end of the podcast, coming back to the original question about, you know, whether this is a, a positive step forward for nuclear. From what you've been saying, is any is the security angle something that's actually going to undermine the future of nuclear energy, despite the positive mood at COP28, despite the pledges to increase capacity? Do you think that this dependency on Russia and China, which you've been talking about, is ultimately going to be a real blockage because people are just too concerned about depending on those two countries? Or do you think there are opportunities for diversification that either exist and haven't been exploited yet or will emerge over the next decade that can actually enhance, if you like, the availability of diverse sources of supply? Well, you know, in terms of uh, as an energy security strategist, I'm pro-diversification. So if I want to look at to having a diverse energy system portfolio to increase the energy resiliency of any country, I would definitely look into diversify both the sources and suppliers of um, energy in that country. However, moving toward energy security and also um, environmental sustainability, net zero goals, Focusing a lot uh, on energy and nuclear energy is not going to solve the question of energy security because looking at nuclear power generation from, again, going back to mining to all the way, the whole value chain, there is a huge dependency on Russia and China. So for some of those energy gurus that they believe that in the post-Ukraine war, the dependence and influence of Russia is going to decrease in, let's say, Europe or uh, around the world, I would say that Russia would regain a huge influence as the nuclear power generation is going to spread around the world and the capacity increases. If you look at it, it's very interesting because I remember before the Ukraine war, there was a conference in Cape Town and the head of the uh, Ross Atom in South Africa, he, he said that all uh, Ross Atom is waiting is for Europe to consider nuclear power generation in, in their taxation as green. Because before, I mean, nuclear is kind of pink or gray, whatever you want to call it. And the interesting thing is that the first aftermath of the Ukraine-Russia war was that European Union, in terms of their taxation law, uh, recognized nuclear as a green uh, energy. And the more nuclear is encouraged uh, to uh, expand as a power generation source around the world, obviously U.S. and Europe, uh, both in terms of cost and lack of uh, access to the whole value chain, they're way behind Russia and China's role that is increasing. Also, I want to mention another point is that China is itself a major importer of nuclear uh, uranium ore. And uh, if you look at it by 2026, about 14 or 15 percent of Russia's uranium ore produced uh, is going to go to China through uh, from their mine number six. So we see that we should also look into like uh, exactly the same question of strategic minerals. China's demand already is huge um, and China is going to have a huge chunk of that share for import and 
import of uranium ore and uh, production of nuclear power generation. So definitely, I encourage the audience to look into the, this issue of Oxford uh, Energy Forum, as we have argues against and pro uh, the nuclear power generation. And we try to very carefully look at both the advantages and also disadvantages of this power generation and uh, nuclear power generation. Obviously, we need new players. And the more players uh, we have in terms of particularly nuclear fuel production, uh, we're going to create that diversity needed for our energy security. Okay, well, with that plug for the the forum, which is published now on the Oxford Institute's website at oxfordenergy.org, let's conclude this podcast. Thanks very much, Sarah, for your uh, your comments, for highlighting the issues around the geopolitics of nuclear. There are around 20 articles in the forum, which cover a, a wide diversity of issues across the uh, the whole nuclear debate. So Sarah says, do have a read of that. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Sarah, for your comments again. Uh, but with that, we will end here and there'll be another podcast from the Institute out in the next week or so. Until then, do take care of yourselves and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programmes, then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org. Thank you.